This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Okie dokie, folks. Welcome back. Horticulture's fellow rushing and me and Java Chapman and all the folks here at MPB. We want to open up the conversation about gardening today. I know it's hot, it's muggy, it's humid. I know the stuff is fizzling out and it might be a little too early to replant some stuff, but we keep going one step at a time. Java is just like eating an elephant, man. I don't know if you've ever heard me say that. Yeah, that's the, like how do you eat an elephant? One bite at yeah. a time. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Or you I can start with the trunk and no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hope you end up the right end. That's right. But anyway, there's so much going on right now, but we can't get out and enjoy it. It's just stifling hot. At a certain temperature recently they came up with a chart that shows when the air temperature gets a certain degree and the humidity hits a certain degree our bodies actually lose the ability to cool themselves our sweat can't evaporate and our inner core will rise i mean just not doing anything but standing outside so it's no wonder we don't like to get out and do much right now it's not good for us but anyway have you been taking your kids outside in the daytime or y'all do stuff in the evening when y'all get home or what yeah, it's really in the afternoon, evening after five. And a lot of the time it's like under the shade. My daughter got some skates for her birthday and we just stay up <laughs> under the covering because it stays hot till really late in the evening. Okay, let me ask you this. This is an old guy talking. When I was a kid, we had metal skates that you would put on your shoes and tighten with a key. No, they're not not that kind. They're light-up skates, and you have unicorns and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. And trust me, those metal wheels, no matter how many ball bearings they had, were not fun on sidewalks. But, you know, that's what you do as a kid. You get out and you imagine stuff. You just, you're free to do stuff. Would you put on a pair of skates now, Java? I actually would. I've been trying to see how we can throw a skate party. We may have to throw you a welcome back uh, skate party, Felder. <laughs> well, can I bring my sparkly cape with it? Because you can't really do skates right without a cape. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm conjuring my inner child here, you know, because that's what gardening is about. A lot of times gardening is production-oriented. We're doing something, and here's the process and the steps. And sometimes we're so daunted, we can't really even get started or give up when things don't work right. Well, kids don't do that. Kids do things one thing at a time and then move on and see what happens and learn from that. So that's one of the things about having a hobby garden. You know, not talking about trying to fill the freezer or get yard of the month or you know, that sort of stuff. I'm talking about just gardening for the fun of it without real expectations, savoring the moments. And that way, even the bad stuff has a sort of a perverse sense of humor about it. But anyway, that's the kind of stuff we're going to talk about. We also have a serious issue we're going to bring up in a few minutes, which Joe will do after the first break. But we're here to talk with folks about what's going on in their gardens. And we're going to start out up in the Delta, the river city of Greenville. Hey, Stephen, how are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well, and I hope y'all are too. So far, so good. What's up? So I transplanted some big leaf hydrangeas back in early spring, and while they are still alive, they're looking pretty pitiful. I didn't do any kind of trimming or any kind of preparation for them. Yeah. I'm just calling to see if it's too late to trim them now or if you have any suggestions on what I can do to to help save them. Let me ask a couple of questions first. You said you didn't do anything. Did you dig a decent hole? I did. I dug a wide hole and 
and I mended the soil with some, some bark and some compost. Yeah, not too much, I hope, just a little bit. Correct. Yeah. One other thing, did you loosen up the potting soil on the roots when you planted them, just pull them out of the pot and stick them in the ground? This is well, an important question. So I actually transplanted them. They were already in the yard in a, in a different oh, okay. area. Okay, well, that's a whole different ballgame. If you're pulling something right out of a pot and stick it in the ground, it's really important to get those roots and potting soil out of a pot shape so the roots get started out in your dirt. But if you transplant it, when you dug that, you left the fingers of the roots back in the dirt. You only got the elbows and the, and the shoulders. So most of the feeder roots were left behind, and all of the stuff that was above the ground had developed on those. So it would be really important to go ahead – and cut it back a little bit. It won't hurt the plant, but it takes the immediate stress off it. And by the time it sprouts out new growth, which it will, a pruning stimulates new growth, it takes immediate stress. And by the time they put out new growth, the new roots will it'll balance itself with the roots. So it's really important to do that when you transplant stuff. So if you cut them back, you don't have to cut the whole thing back, Stephen, just some of the stems. Cut them back halfway, a third, two-thirds, whatever. Or you can cut the whole plant back to a third of its height. This doesn't matter. This will help a lot. And uh, try not to overwater because big leaf plants like hydrangeas, they tend to wilt even when they're healthy in this kind of heat and they perk back up at night. So don't overwater. A good soaking every week or two is probably all they need, really. Okay, great. I certainly appreciate it. Okay, good luck on it, man. All right, thanks. See y'all. All righty. I got a real interesting email the other day, Java. It was from a fellow who was pruning a vine that had grown up on a wall, a brick wall, right? And when he got up to prune it, he found that the old leaves and stuff is sort of sifted down around between the top of the vine and the top of the fence, the top of the wall, and there were worms in it. And he wanted to know how did worms get up on the top of a brick wall to grow on the leaf litter of a vine? That's the kind of weird stuff I deal with. Now, that is a kind of a, almost a, a riddle. Do you know how they got up there? I do. <laughs> Actually, I sort of knew, you know, it's just like people who dig ponds. They'll dig a pond out in the middle of nowhere. A farmer will make a new pond, nowhere near another pond, never been a pond there before. And before you know it, there's fish in it. Where do they come from? And the truth is, fish eggs are sticky, and they'll stick to the legs of birds. And as the birds land in the new pond, they drop fish eggs in there. Well, here's the deal. Worms don't lay eggs. This is kind of weird, but they have little rings on their bodies, kind of a sticky rings, and those get fertilized, and as a worm goes through the soil, it slides that ring off, and it hardens into a little cocoon full of eggs. So imagine like a Cheerio sliding off of a worm and hardening off, and those are real sticky. So what I theorize is a bird must have grabbed a worm, jumped up on that vine, perched there, and it was eating the worm. The worm was saying, whatever, and shed some of those little cocoons off of it. That's my theory. What do you think? And I I can go with that. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you're a worm and you got cocoon rings on you and you're being eaten, you're going to shed some of them real quick. If nothing else, just sucking it in, you're going to shed some stuff. Yeah, because birds and other, you know, birds are, we don't look at them such sometimes, but they're pollinators just like the bees and the and the other things, so yeah, that's uh, that's feasible. It's, it's a weird world I got, man. It's a real weird world, but that's the kind of stuff that I deal with and I think about, it, and I enjoy it. But it's not really gardening; it's garden oriented, I guess, or garden interest. But that's the thing that separates gardening from horticulture. Horticulture is how to and production. Gardening is wow, wasn't that neat? 
So anyway, I'm not sure this guy believed it or not, but it's the truth. That's the way things really work. So anyway, uh, Java, we got a, a kind of a serious thing to talk about. But by the way, my old friend and original co-host of the Gestalt Gardener program, the late, great Dr. Dirt, must be rolling over in his grave. Because last week I was alerted to a new soil-borne tropical bacteria that's discovered for the first time in North America in Mississippi, and we played that tune called "I'm Gonna Eat Some Worms." You remember that? We did. We we did do that. <laughs> yes, we did. Turns out, it may not be such a good idea. Did you find a real expert to talk with us about this? Yeah, and you sent me on a search, and I think I turned up the perfect person to talk about this because we don't want to give out any wrong information. So we reach out to the experts, and on the line we have Julia Petrus. She's an epidemic intelligence service officer with the CDC in the bacterial special pathogens branch. Wow. Hey, Julia, how are you this morning? Hi, Felder. Good morning. Happy to Howdy. be here. Thank you. And thank you for helping us out. First of all, I want to acknowledge your personal professional work at finding this needle in a haystack bacteria that apparently affected a couple of unrelated men on the Gulf Coast. And you came to Mississippi from Atlanta and spent no telling how long interviewing and sampling until you found the culprit and took samples back. And apparently Jay Gee, a biologist who grew up in northern Mississippi, confirmed your findings. But before we get into what causes it and what can happen, what is this, this meliodosis? What is it? What causes it? Sure. So meliodosis is a rare disease. It can be serious for those who get it, but it's caused by this bacteria. And the name of the bacteria is Burkholderia pseudomaliae. It's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this bacteria is also found where sheep and pigs and horses and stuff. Is it the same bacteria that they have? So I think you might be thinking of the disease called glanders, which um, yeah. primarily affects animals. So it is related. Burkholderia stomalii is related uh, to that same bacteria, but it is different. And the difference is the Burkholderia stomalii affects both animals and humans. And this bacteria typically lives in soil and water in tropical or subtropical climates. So yeah. Some of the hot spots are northern Australia, Thailand, for instance. But you found it for the first time in North America. You discovered it in Mississippi. What does this mean? Is it just temporary? Is it going to be with us a while? What do we have to worry about or think about? Sure. So, yes. Yeah, so I actually was down in Mississippi in June. And after we found, you know, two different people became sick with meliodosis, which kind of prompted this whole investigation. The first case was in 2020, and the second was in 2022 in the same county. So we sampled the properties of these two men, and we found the bacteria in the yard of one of these patients' properties. And, you know, we have to do a lot more sampling to understand how widespread this really is in the area. But it seems to be established there in the soil and the climate in this southern part of Mississippi, you know, we have thought for some time that it's probably quite suitable for this bacteria. So this is a pretty, you know, it is a new discovery. This is the first time we've found it officially, you know, in the continental United States. And the main things that I think are most important to know is that 
overall, the risk of getting miliodosis, I think, is still generally low. But, you know, and for most healthy adults, even if you're exposed to this bacteria, you probably will not become sick with miliodosis. That's important to know. But if you have certain health conditions, like if you have diabetes or lung disease or some immune suppressing condition, this is something to pay attention to. And the, the major things are if you're gardening and working with soil where this bacteria may live, which to take do. precautions. Right, which you do. So taking those precautions, like wearing gardening gloves, wearing gloves to protect your hands, covering up any open wounds that might be on your hands or feet, wearing, you know, closed-toed shoes that are going to protect your feet when you're out in the garden, those types of things. Nothing, you know, nothing extremely new. I mean, I think these are things that I think are groundbreaking, but I think are really important for people working, you know, in the gardens in this Gulf Coast region. Let me ask you this. Is this mostly through like cuts and stuff like that? Can you get it from chewing your fingernails? Yeah, so a lot of the cases do report having, you know, breaks in the skin. So if you have any kind of cut on the hand or the foot or or whatnot, and, and it comes into contact with the soil that has the bacteria in it, it's more likely to enter into the body. So that's why we say, you know, make sure you're covering up any cuts and making sure you're wearing gloves and foot protection when out in the soil. Oh. Do you think that this is something that's going to stay here? I mean, it just now discovered it. No telling how long it's been here. And like you say, if you're healthy, it's probably not going to be an issue. You think this is something that, that we're going to have to gird ourselves for and, you know, just be thinking about all the time or, or just be aware? I mean, because I know y'all are working with medical doctors and letting them know that these are the symptoms you should look for which they haven't been before. So, you know, you work in the medical community, but what do gardeners need to, do we need to worry about this? So I think that it is here to stay, I guess is the first simple answer to yeah. the first question. Yeah. You know, we found it for the first time. We don't know how long it's been here. It could have been here for, you know, we know it's at least been here since 2020. It could have been here earlier. We just don't know exactly. So I think it is here to stay. So it is living amongst us. And so those precautions I just said, I think are really the most important things. Cover up open wounds, avoid gardening in severe weather events, because sometimes it, we know in other endemic settings, when there's heavy rain, it can actually bring the bacteria that's living maybe in a deeper layer of the soil, it can bring it up to the surface and make people more at risk. So avoiding gardening in those severe weather stormy times and then wearing protection. And you brought up a good point. I mean, we are working with the Mississippi Department of Health to make clinicians in this area really aware of signs and symptoms of meliodosis and making them aware that it, you know, the bacteria now is present in soil and to have them on alert. So I understand that the symptoms, though, can be like a whole lot of other stuff, aches and pains and maybe fevers or something. Yes, they're quite across the spectrum, nonspecific symptoms, but in most adults, miliodosis will present as a severe pneumonia, but a lot of people will have fever, malaise, weakness. It can look like a lot of other things. That's why it's important to see your doctor if you yeah. are ill, and doctors can test for this. You would take a sample and put it on a culture plate, 
I know, you know, Julie, with all these weird days, and, you know, people, they don't know if they can go swimming in the lake anymore because of weird stuff. You don't know about coughing and all. Is this something that should be at the forefront or just people take care in the garden? How do you put a positive spin? How can you put a, a don't worry about it spin on this, or can you? Well, I would say don't stop doing the hobbies you love. I mean, if you're gardening in this area, you know, keep gardening, but be aware that this is in the environment and take those extra precautions. If you don't already use gardening gloves and you don't already wear foot protection, now is the time to really consider doing that. I know that there are things you can do. I know that the bacteria can be deactivated with Clorox and alcohol and stuff like that, but just be as clean as you can. Maybe wash your hands when you're done gardening, right? And don't worry so much about it. Yes, I would say definitely wash your hands after gardening, protect yourself, but this is still quite a very rare disease. So that's something to keep in mind. And as I said, certain people with risk factors would be more at risk. So people with diabetes, for example. So know your own risk factors, be aware, but don't stop gardening and take precautions. I noticed that Mississippi State uh, epidemiologist, a guy named Paul Byers, he said that people at high risk for severe infection should take recommended precautions. But in general, if you're all cut up, don't get dirty, wash your hands, right? Yes, that's definitely a good message for everybody. And no more making mud pies. (laughs) Well... Put your gloves on before you make a mud pie. Let's say that. There you go. There you go. Well, I know it's been a a really weird year for y'all at the CDC, but you're used to it. Thanks, Julia, so much. And give our thanks also to Paul G. and all the other folks at CDC for bringing this to our attention. We're going to move forward as usual. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Felder, and happy gardening. And let us know if you have any other questions. And thanks so much. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks. Oh, boy, Java. Sounds like you're going to have to, if you get your kids to make mud pies, you need to put on some of those plastic gloves first. Yeah, but I think Julia, she gave the perfect wrap-up as far as, like, don't stop what you're doing, but like you say, be safe about it and just know that these things are out there. Just be safe. Just be safe. Yeah, yeah. She's still still very rare. And I guess if you've got really cut-up hands and stuff like just wear some, you know, I've always gardened without gloves, and I've always got thorns and cuts and scrapes and stuff. And I'm just going to go out and get me a pair of gloves, and that's the main thing I'm going to worry about. And, you know, try not to rub my eyes till I wash my hands. But we're sort of used to that for the past couple of years, aren't we? Yeah, and Ophelda, I know we got the cheesy tune coming up. We're at the halfway point of the show, but I really want to see if we can get Bill from the oh, Shoba yes. County. He's He got his blueberries he wanted to talk about this yes. morning before we get to the hey, cheesy hey. tune. Yeah, Bill, what's going on? Thanks for holding. Thanks for taking my call. Okay, two things. The first one is that a week or so ago, I trimmed my blueberries. And, you know, I followed your instructions. And I went out today, and five of my six plants have a dead branch on it. I assume it's dead because all of the leaves are brown. The rest of the plants are okay, but it's like every one of them has the same symptom. Got any idea what's happening? No, I don't, because pruning usually does not affect plants that way, you know, so I'm going to have to guess, are any of the ones that are turning brown, are they ones that you've already pruned on, or are they not pruned, or is it dead below where you pruned, or what? I think it's both of them. I mean, some of them I've pruned on, some of them I haven't. Okay, that's sort of an important symptom. Have these plants been out there for a long time, more than a year or two? Yes. 
Okay. It could just be this time of year, I see a lot of different kinds of shrubs. Just parts of them with the whole plant just turn completely brown because it got root damage from staying too wet part of the year and then too dry, both of which affect roots, especially spongy kind of roots like blueberries have. So it could just be that your plant stayed a little too wet or a little too dry or back and forth and back and forth. And then the heat of summer, they just said, you know what, I just can't take it anymore. And parts of them are dying back. This is fairly common on azaleas and Japanese hollies and a whole bunch of other shrubs. So it could just be that's all it is. I don't think that the pruning itself would have had any negative effects. It's usually a beneficial thing. But if you go two or three weeks without a good rain, give them a good soaking. And that's about all you can really do. Okay, so the limbs that look dead, should I prune them off? or? Well, if they turn brown, the rule of thumb, if the leaves turn brown and stick, that part of the plant is dead. But, you know, there's no rush. If you want to wait to cut them off, it doesn't matter the plant one way or the other. Thanks for that info. I got a question about Celeste figs. So this is my first year to get any really heavy fig production. I mean, in the past, I've looked for yellow figs that are kind of droopy on the bush. But this year, they're just going from just sitting there to falling off the tree. And those that I do catch and open them up, they don't seem to be really... Develop. Well, Celeste is a good, dependable, it's my top recommended fig. You know, brown turkey has been around for a long time, and it's got a whole bunch of folk names. But Celeste is usually a pretty sturdy plant. But keep in mind, a fig is not really a fruit. It's an inside-out flower. And anything that affects the roots of the trees is going to affect the flowers first more than anything. So, again, it gets back to rainfall patterns, heat, drought, things like that. Normally, a Celeste is just a real sturdy, good-producing tree. Did you prune it when you set it out? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Well, that's the main thing. In the wintertime, just cut some of this year's growth. This winter, cut some of this year's growth back a little bit. You know, just keep it nice and compact. But I'm going to think that as long as you mulch, you know, have the nice wide mulch area in at least three or four feet across, that's really important for figs because they're Mediterranean plants that are not used to heavy rains and high heat and humidity after heavy rains because that all affects roots. So other than mulching, watering every now and then, light pruning, there's not much else you can do. I just think it's going to need some time to settle down. Okay. So what does a really ripe Celeste fig look like? It's a little bit bigger, not as dark as a brown turkey. I really can't describe it because it just looks like a fig to me. I've got a fig that's called Kazeri fig. It's almost the size of an egg, but it's yellow when it's ripe. But the Celeste fig is just a typical fig, I guess, a little bit lighter color than the old brown turkey. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to a better harvest next year. Yeah, me too. Good luck on it, man. Thanks for your call, Bill. Thank you. All righty, Java. I got a little cheesy tune that's of a group that's, uh, that's made this tune after a fellow, the late, great Mr. Okra. Mr. Okra from uh, New Orleans. He used to sell uh, all sorts of fruits and vegetables and things like that from a truck he drove around the neighborhood. And I thought it'd be this time of year just to remind folks that there are people out there who are selling fruits and vegetables from roadside stands, from farmer's markets, sometimes from little stands right off their front porch. And we want to celebrate folks who grow more than they can use themselves and share it with each other. So we're going to come back with a tune uh, about Mr. Okra here on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. 
apricots too. My name is Mr. Okra, and I bring them all to you. Hey, my name is Mr. Okra, and I bring them all to you. There ain't no joy like your own empire, no better plan. I'm a self-made man. I love my truck when it artfully driving it through the Crescent City. You hear my voice, you know what it means. I got joy. My name is Arthur Jan Robinson. I'm 73 years old. I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. People call me Mr. Okra. What you think about that, Felder? Man, where, where did you come up with that? That's a real Mr. Okra. Yeah, Mr. Arthur Robinson, a.k.a. Mr. Okra. He passed away a couple man. years ago. He did. He did. You are the man, Java. You are the man. So, phew. Anyway, hey, that was a pretty good interview with the CDC folks about this new thing. She's saying, just be careful. Don't worry too much about it. Is that what I heard? That's what I heard, too. And we talked a little bit offline as I was thanking them for joining the show. And that was basically the synopsis. You know, it's out there. It's, you know, you should have concern, but just general concern. Wear your gloves and don't be like Felder who doesn't garden with gloves. <laughs> but just be, be safe and, you know, just keep everything. Uh, There's nothing too much to concern about. Yes, right, man. When I start gardening, I'm a glove up from here on. Anyway, I appreciate it. Hey, we got Bobby who's been holding from Pontotoc for a while, right? Hey, Bobby, what's going on, man? That man talking about figs a while ago made me think he'll, he'll know when they get ripe because the fire ain't so good in them. <laughs> fire and, and the yellow jackets. Yeah, well, what I was going to tell you, what I'm wanting to ask you about, this ditch out here by my mailbox, every year it's had water running down it. This year it hasn't had any. It's Summer it hadn't had any water running down it at all, and that's getting me worried because Mike Poe and Larry Poe owns about 500 acres of trees behind my house, and I'm wondering what's the chance of a forest fire getting in them trees. Well, there's always a chance of forest fires, I mean, even during normal weather, you know, because especially if there's a lot of uh, of loose limbs and underbrush and stuff like that that catch it. Forest fire has been a problem for a long time. But uh, not much we can do about it, though, except, you know, make sure that right around your house you keep brush and, you know, leaves and limbs and stuff picked up. So there's just not much we can do about this. It's the weather, whether some people want to admit or not, is changing. But I think this is something we deal with every year anyway. Well, I cut all the trees back 100 foot from my house, and I planted Christmas trees, the cedar trees, in the place of them big old trees. And I'm hoping that'll help some, but... I don't know. We uh, never really had no fire fires in this area that I know anything about in Pontotoc County that mounted anything. And yeah. I'm just wondering if this increase in heat is going to do anything terrible to us. Well, you know, in the big picture, you know, a lot of people are concerned about how local weather is affected by overall climate problems. But again, we have always had, I mean, I was in the Forestry Commission, they used to have fire towers everywhere, and they had them for a reason, for forest fires. But, you know, it's really not that much hotter this year than it has been for a long time. But, you know, the pattern of rain has changed, you know, where it stays a little bit wetter, a little bit longer, stays a little bit drier. But again, not much we can do. I will sort of give you a heads up about this. So cedar trees and pine trees and conifer type things, they burn like a candle. 
compared to oak trees and stuff because they got a lot of rosin in them. So, you know, I think you might want to think twice about planting conifer-type trees because they explode when they get well, on I was, fire. I was scared of them big trees because they're bad about falling on your house, you know, like they yeah, don't have yeah, no yeah. tap roots and that. That's one yeah, thing. that's right. That's right. But, you know, that's all you can do, you know, just sort of think, you know, see if a tree is going to fall, what might it hit. But, uh, again, I wouldn't put conifers up close to the house because if they ever catch on fire, they got a lot of rosin in them. But that's all we can do. Just sort of keep, you know. Well, keep, I, get, keep I, get it, I get in trouble either way I go, don't I? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, just relax. Just relax and keep a garden hose handy. I better go see a psychiatrist that's going to run me nuts. <laughs> all right. Thank you for the information. <laughs> okay, Bobby. Thank you. Now, we're going to, ooh, this, there's no way to answer that one. Uh, let's talk to Janice. Janice, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Wren. Oh, Lynn, okay, that's, you're a Delta gal. Wren, uh, W-R-E-N, between Aberdeen, oh, oh. Avery, and Middleton. Okay, okay, well, what's going on? I want to know, besides using a backhoe, how can I thin out my daylilies? <laughs> you mean thin them out? Well, they're taking uh, over my little garden, and I want to get rid of the perimeter. Yeah, well, you know, this time of year is hard to dig in. You know, you have almost have to use a, a backhoe. If you can wait until fall or a couple of three days after a good rain, or if you have a light rain, if you go out afterwards and water them, the next day the dirt's easier to, dry, to dig. It's not easy to dig plants when the dirt is wet or dry, but two or three days after a good rain, you can just lift the whole plants up, drop it on the ground, break it up in the individual plant, plant back what you want, and give the rest away. You know, two or three days after good rain or good watering, they're a whole lot easier to do. And you can take a daylily and hold it up waist high, just drop it on the ground and break it in little pieces, and it will not care at all. Real easy to divide. Okay, one other question about England. I was there several years ago, and those hanging baskets and window boxes were gorgeous, and I was so worried about them during the heat wave. Have they survived they're doing fine but you know the heat wave that we had here in england was really for two days it went from around 67 70 degrees for weeks at a time it went from there up to the upper 80s 90 it hit 100 degrees but the next day it was back down to 67 that was just a temporary thing that blew in from the continent but all those beautiful hanging baskets and they are everywhere hanging baskets window boxes the two things that they do that we don't do First of all, they choose plants that like hot weather. I mean, that, that like their weather. If you try to grow pansies in Mississippi, uh, petunias in Mississippi, they're going to burn up in the summertime. So you have to, to choose plants that like the weather we have. But second of all, they almost all have what we call drip irrigation. All these pubs and houses, they got little tubes running the plants that come on for a few seconds every 10 or 15 minutes. So they keep them moist with drip irrigation. That's one of their little secrets that they learned a long time ago. Well, that is a secret because I was thinking it was all that rain they got. <laughs> they don't really get, you know, they don't get as much rain as we do in Mississippi. It's just a little, it's sort of like in Seattle. You think Seattle rains a lot, but it just sort of drizzles a little bit, a lot. And they don't have frog drought stranglers like we do, but appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it is one of those things where wherever you live, whether it's Mississippi or England or Japan or South Africa, wherever you live, choose plants that do well in your climate. Don't be lured by buying these gushy-looking plants that come out of garden centers in Florida. If it's a sturdy, old, dependable kind of plant, stick with those as your main plants. Water them when they get dry. Don't let them stay dry. 
And then if you try something new and fancy and interesting, if it doesn't make it, well, you still got your old tried true plans to hold you through. So stick with what we know rather than trying new stuff or else you're going to put all your eggs in that one gambling basket. Let's slide down to the Gulf Coast and talk to Shelly in Gulfport. Hi, Shelly. What's going on? I have something on the eaves of my house that I believe are bagworms, and I don't know, can't tell if they're on the shrubs along the front of the house. The eaves are white, so they're dark, and so they stand out. And I'm just wanting to know if that's, in fact, what they are, what do I do about it? Well, first of all, let's get our, our right turn. Bagworms, you know, they're webworms that are out in trees and tent caterpillars in trees, but bagworms are caterpillars that cover themselves a little piece of silk and then hang dead leaves off of it. They look like little Christmas ornaments. Is that what yours look like? Yeah, they look like teeny tiny miniature pine cones, and they just yeah, yeah, grow yeah. in the blue. Yeah, yeah. Well, what the caterpillar does when they hatch out, helps lay the egg on the kind of plants that the caterpillars eat. And when they hatch out, they spin this little bit of web and coat themselves with leaves as a camouflage, and they hang upside down. So the caterpillar is at the top, hanging on with his feet and chewing on stuff. And that bag type of thing, sort of like a like a sleeping bag covered leaves, hangs down. When the caterpillar gets the right stage, when it's ready to stop eating and go into a cocoon and become a moth. It attaches itself to a spot, and that it turns into a cocoon in there. So it could be that yours have crawled off of the plant and crawled another place, and they've attached themselves to a piece of silk, and it's going to have a cocoon inside of it. So, you know, pluck a few off. If you can see the caterpillar's head and legs sticking out the end of it, just toss it out in the grass. It can't crawl back before the birds and spiders and wasps get it. And if it's attached to something, you know, you can either ignore them or sweep them off. To do something about spraying, like, the shrubs. I did see one hanging on a bottle brush tree, but they're so hard to see. Yeah. If they're still active, and again, you know, look at them close. You know, they don't bite or sting. They're just caterpillars, you know, pulling off. And if you can see the head and legs sticking out of the end, then it's still actively feeding. If it's attached itself to a little piece of silk and it's inside the cocoon, you just don't need to spray. It's already done. All right. Should I do something next year? You can. There are certain plants that are highly susceptible to bagworms, cedars, junipers, arborvitaes, those kind of conifers. They get them. A lot of other plants do, too. But if you know you've had them one year, you'll probably have some. Keep in mind, one moth can lay 20, 30, 100 eggs. So it could just be a random moth that came through. But keep an eye. Start looking towards the end of June. If you see little ones, you can spray them with even a real mild insecticide. The stuff they sell is biological worm spray. It'll take them right out without hurting the birds or bees or anything. But start looking for them in June. You know, make a note, stick on the refrigerator. End of June, start looking and see if you see them. You can spray for them then, but by the time they get big, they've already done all the damage. doesn't really do any good to spray. Okay, thank you. Okay, good luck on it, Shelly. Thanks for calling. Let me uh, remind folks, this is sort of the last call for setting out summer vegetable plants. If you wanted to plant some tomatoes and peppers, eggplants, things like that for fall harvest, this is really the end of the time when they still have time to mature and produce fruit before fall. So if you're thinking about that, go ahead and get started now. Otherwise, it's time to start thinking about shifting gears and going with cool season things like broccoli and cabbage and lettuces and things like that. Anyway, let's talk with Jerry. He's in Fondren. What's going on, Jerry? Hey, Felder. I was wondering, did you hear about the northern Haiti magnolia? Nope. Well, I heard it was on MPB (laughs) the other day. The last time it was seen 
was in 1925, and they thought it was extinct. You know, it's in Haiti, and there's a lot of deforestation. Yeah. But this group from the Dominican Republic went into Haiti, and it was pretty hard for them to find it. But they asked people in the area, and they showed them pictures. They said they'd never seen anything like that. But they found a gorge, a valley, and there were 16 trees in it. So, yeah, I, I, I just went online and found this. It says the first time they've seen this since 1925, they rediscovered it in a forest. Right. And it just, I thought it was cool that a magnolia that they thought was gone is back, and they're, they're going to try to propagate it. So I just yeah, wondered if you heard. I had not, but I just went online and saw about it. You know, this is where we found ginkgos. They thought they were extinct, and they found them in A Valley in China. And now we all have ginkgos. So that's good news, really good news, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, I just thought, I know you love magnolias, and I do too, heck. You know, a lot of people from Europe are amazed. I mean, they grow magnolias espaliered against castle walls in England where it stays warm. But they're just amazed to see them just growing wild in Mississippi. They just can't believe something that magnificent. Anyway, I appreciate the whole bunch. I'm going to study up a little bit more about this, Jerry. Thank you for that uh, info, Jerry. I'm going to look that up. That sounds neat. But let's go to Richard in Iowa before we uh, close the show, Felder. Okay, Richard, we're starting to run out of time, but where in Iowa are you? I'm in Decorah, Iowa, very northeast okay. corner. I've, I've been there. I've been there. That's what What's I thought you been here. I wasn't sure. So I listened to a bunch of gardening podcasts in Wisconsin. They talked about a potential to plant Tonto crepe myrtle. I'm in zone like 4B on the edge of it. Do you think yeah, Tonto. worth my time? <laughs> no. Well, unless you're growing a container. Tonto is one of many cultivars of a fairly new group of crepe myrtles that were introduced oh, starting back in the I forget when, 1930s or something. It's a cross between two species. Some of the most popular crepe myrtle varieties are from that line. Tonto is kind of a smallish one. I think it's red, if I recall. Yeah. I just don't remember. But anyway, none of the crepe myrtle is going to be winter hardy in your part of the country. You know, you're in Even the Even with country. protection, if I can protect yes, it? Yes, yes. Yeah, a lot, of crate, a, lot, a lot of crate myrtles get damaged even in Tennessee. If, if we have a normal winter, and y'all have normal winters like we've never seen in the South, uh, you know, you could grow it in a <laughs> container. I mean, seriously, can grow it in a container, keep it pruned like a large bonsai, and bring it in during cold weather because they go dormant in the wintertime. So you could do that and grow them for a long time. But So anyway, that's that's. And then give it to 10 do. years to put it in the ground. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I wouldn't put a crate no, no, no. Y'all are in lilac country. You know, you like crepe myrtles, come on down here. And like I tell people who grow, who love lilacs, need to go back up to where they came from. Yeah. Awesome. Appreciate Have it, man. Day. Yeah. Good luck Thank on you. it. Oh, yeah, crepe myrtles. So many, many, many different varieties. Uh, we're starting to see a little trouble with the crepe myrtle bark scale causing it to turn black, but that's for another day. We've been talking about gardening. We've been talking about weird new diseases and all sorts of stuff. Stick with us, folks. We're back here every Friday here on MPB talking about gardening, uh, just like we do all sorts of topics during the week. So I uh, want to thank Java and all the other folks at MPB. We're going to take a little break. We call it a week, and we're going to come back with more of the Gestalt Gardener. Take a kid to a farmer's market. Let them meet somebody who grows stuff for a living and get them to show them how we do what we do, what we do best, and that's get dirty. See y'all next week. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, 
please contribute today at mpbonline.org.